This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and UpSnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Medicine and Health with Dr. Paul Anderson. This is a show about opening up the often mysterious world of how doctors think. The goal? To empower the listener to gain access to the best health care possible. Welcome, everyone, to Medicine and Health with Dr. Paul Anderson. I am Dr. Paul Anderson. I'm the medical director of Anderson Medical Specialty Associates in Seattle, where we treat patients who have chronic diseases as well as cancer. And today our topic is genetics and the other related top of genomics and how they fit into medicine. So one of the things that we hear a lot uh, is everybody seems to be reasonably aware that we have genes and we have genetics and that they come from our parents uh, and they together are what make uh, the new human. And many of us have heard of or may even know someone with uh, possibly a genetic disease or genetic disorder. There are a large number of uh, diagnosed genetic problems. Some of them have to do with the inappropriate blood clotting. Some are uh, problems that babies are born with that make uh, their metabolism not work right. Any number of things. One of the things that we see is the world of genetics and uh, genomic medicine is expanding a lot faster than uh, our, our understanding of it really. And that has come about because of a uh, newer, not really brand new, but a newer application of ways to test the actual genetics in a particular person. So if you go back a number of years, 5, 10, 15 years, the only genetics that were really tested regularly were particular uh, genetics related to deadly or potentially life-threatening diseases or heritable diseases that, a, a, say, a baby would be born and maybe they would start to show signs of a particular problem, then a genetic counseling and genetic testing would be done. The uh, intervening time period... Uh, the human genome has been mapped out, and uh, we know more about where the genes are and what they do, although we certainly are still learning all of the time about uh, the human genome and genetics. And so what we see now is we have different uh, ways to test that we never really did before. One of the problems that occurs when we have these ways of testing is that uh, the the physicians uh, who are trying to help us as patients are then sometimes on the upside of a learning curve. So most of the time, if you go to your doctor, what you notice is they probably know more about most of the blood tests or other tests and diseases than you do because that's their business. They're, they're your doctor. They're supposed to. When it comes to genetics, everybody knows the things that they were uh, taught in school but a lot of the things available today were not even in existence when most doctors were in school. So what we want to do today on medicine and health is talk about this uh, really exploding world of uh, both testing but also assessment of genetics 
and also different areas where uh, it can actually help in the uh, either the treatment or prevention of disorders uh, and diseases and optimization of health. And so uh, we're taking a really large topic and we're only going to have this one hour to do it. And so what we're going to do is uh, kind of look at a few different areas that come up. So we've set the stage basically uh, by saying we have uh, this new ability to test genetics and test our genome. And yet uh, we're not really sure what all of those results mean. It would be, you know, kind of like if you went back um, you know, 150 years ago, and you showed a doctor 150 years ago one of the blood test panels that we have now, they would recognize probably about 10 things, you know, out of a 30 or 40 uh, unit blood test panel. And they, they would, I think, be amazed and excited about what they were able to find, but you would suddenly be presenting them with information that they had never learned about because it just wasn't able to test. Well, now um, we're in a similar position where um, doctors are trying to learn as quickly as they can what all of this means and what the importance of it is. So now, in some cases, you have uh, patients who may have done some testing and gone to a website to explain that testing, and they may actually have much more information than their doctor does about these genetic issues. So first off, uh, we'll just talk about some big picture things, and that is, um, how, how, how does one test their genetics? Well, your uh, DNA and your genome is, is kept in every cell that you have. So there are blood tests that can test for gene problems, but also there are cheek swab tests and uh, saliva tests because you have a lot of your cells inside of your saliva and your uh, cheek cells. And so, you know, if you, if you watch any of those, uh, you know, crime dramas and that sort of thing when they're doing DNA testing. Often it's something like a cheek uh, swab type of a test. And so as we go through and we're looking, there's lots of ways to do the testing. The next question would be, why would I want to know? And uh, it was having uh, a discussion with a person um, who, who's not in the medical field at all, and they were they were just inquiring about what I was doing, and I was I was actually speaking at a uh, genetics conference, and we were talking about these very topics, and the person said, "Well, you know, genetics is scary to me," and I said, "Well, why is it? You know, what is it about genetics that's scary to you?" And the reason, as we talked about it, that their uh, impression was one of fear, was that they had only thought of genetics and genomics with respect to changing your genes. And that's not what we're really talking about here today. Uh, while there is certainly a lot of research um, and a lot of other things going on into potentially uh, using um, cell biology and, and nuclear biology to uh, do things to change genes that are dysfunctional, that's not what we're talking about right now. What we want to talk about is if we find certain thing, things in your genome, in your genetics, what can be done to use that information to help you live a healthier life? And so how does that even work? So the fear, as we talked about it, this person and I, the fear over genetics and genetic medicine uh, really was more about that, uh, well, 
genetic medicine to this person meant I'm going to get in your genome, I'm going to change your genes. That's not really what we're talking about or what we're doing, at least at this point in medicine. What we're doing right now is using a knowledge of what the genes code for, what they do, to try and optimize things that you uh, can do for yourself or your children that might decrease the chance of problems later in life. So I'm going to use some specific examples, and um, we have some uh, have some really good email questions that were sent in uh, by listeners, and we'll we'll use those to kind of illustrate as we go along as well. So the next thing is, um, what is the difference? And many people have heard these terms between your genetics and then this idea of epigenetics. So if you, uh, there, there have been some really good, uh, for instance, some good specials on, uh, you know, Nova, uh, even played on the History Channel and all sorts of places on TV about epigenetics. And so epigenetics literally means something like around or affecting of your genetics. So it's not your genetics, it's what happens to them. And this is something that we don't think about sometimes, but Yes, you can be born with genes that are, uh, say, weak in an area or non-functional. But if those genes and their function has never been stressed or tested, they are not going to be a problem for you. Whereas, let's say you're born, uh, you know, you're, you're born and you have weaknesses in certain genetic areas and you wind up having lots of stresses in the areas where those genes are functional, that's called an epigenetic stress, and it actually can create uh, a manifestation of that problem that the other person who didn't have those stressors wouldn't have. So this adds a whole other uh, issue into this world of, of the genome and genetics. And what we see now is with these different tests that people do that we're going to talk about, that we get into uh, testing and they find out, okay, I have this um, oddity in the genes and, and I have this other one and this other one. And they can have exactly the same abnormalities as the person next to them. person next to them could have a great deal of difficulty and they may have no difficulty, same genetic abnormalities. Well, that's where the epigenetics come into play. Epigenetic stressors on the person with the difficulties have likely led them to manifest the problems associated with those genes. And we'll give an example of a couple coming up here. But it's really important to remember that although you are, uh, to some degree, from a DNA point of view, the genes that have come together to make you and cause your cells to work and everything, not all genetic dysfunction is experienced the same way by everybody. And that's a real kind of wild thought for some people, but it, it literally has to do with stressors that occur to your genetics. Now, there's another thing, uh, and, and I keep referencing the NOVA special on epigenetics, which is one of the best uh, done that I've, I've ever seen. The other thing that they talk about, which seems even uh, to some degree just even more out there, is this idea that 
your parents or your grandparents' stressors on their epigenetics can create trouble in the child or the grandchild or even the great-grandchild downstream. And so when we're thinking about that, the thing to keep in mind is that we can't really control what our grandparents did or our parents, and sometimes we can't control the stressors we've had in our life. But it's just an example of why would two people have exactly the same genetic difficulties? One person gets tons of symptoms and problems out of it. The other person seemingly has no symptoms from those same genetic variants. And it's this issue around epigenetic changes. So one of the um, things that's very common and uh, may you may have uh, you know heard about a lot, et cetera, and it's even been in the news, and there's a lot of controversy around diagnosis and treatment thereof. But uh, is this idea of one of the gene pairs uh, being problematic? And we've known about this particular uh, gene pair for a long, long time, but we've only been really able to test it effectively and less expensively in the last number of years. Uh, is the uh, idea of the MTHFR uh, gene pairs, and that uh, stands for methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. And the job of this is to make an enzyme. A lot of genes code together to make an enzyme. The enzyme made by the MTHFR gene pair is responsible for activating folic acid into its active form, which is 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate. That's the kind that goes and does all of this work in your body. Now, most people have heard of folic acid with respect to the fact that pregnant women need to take enough folic acid so that babies don't have neural tube defects, and that's very true. Well, it's important to think about, well, why is that true? And how would that affect my health? Because I'm neither pregnant nor am I a baby. Why, why would there be a problem with folic acid or folate? Well, the first thing to consider is if I don't have active folic acid, the reason it's a problem for a growing fetus is the same reason it's a problem for an adult. That is that when I go to make new DNA, which we make every day we make new DNA. Why? Because we have to build new cells to repair. So if you're a fetus, you're building new cells to grow. Once you're grown up, you're building new, new cells to repair. So whether you're grown up or a fetus, you need the DNA to uh, duplicate appropriately so you get good cells as you repair or grow. 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, the active folic acid produced by the MTHFR, is going to be primarily responsible for all of your purine bases. These are parts of the DNA work and part of your pyrimidine bases, more part of the DNA. And so you make your DNA parts by activating folic acid. That's why, you know, a pregnant mom needs to have enough folic acid to supply these parts so that the growing fetus can have them. So it's not just neural tube defects. It's really any sort of turnover, any cell replication, etc. that goes on. Now, the thing that you 
uh, see in this circumstance is if you have a deficit in the MTHFR system, then you will have a decrease in the amount of active folic acid that you produce. That becomes a very serious problem. So if you're not a fetus, but let's say you're a grown adult, and you have a, a, a bad gene for MTHFR from mom's side and dad's side, we call it homozygous or a double defect. That means that that gene pair is decreased in its ability to do its job of making that enzyme by up to 70 to 80 percent. So you have 70 to 80 percent less production of uh, the active folic acid. It's not shut off totally, and there are some backup genes in the system, but it does slow it down greatly. So if you think about the problem, and the primary problem being now I have a system that um, is actually uh, slow in making new cells to repair, you could imagine that if you had enough stressors in that area, when you went to repair after an injury or an illness or even after a lot of athletic exercise, it would take you a lot longer to repair than someone next to you who doesn't have these genetic issues. And one of the reasons that MTHFR has become so much, uh, you know, there's a lot about it online and, and in people blogging and writing and all that is, it was one of the first genetic uh, dysfunctions that was well publicized as far as this might be one reason for people who are not, uh, are not well and either chronically are not well or having miscarriages or other problems like that. We well, can imagine if, if this, activation of the folic acid is like at ground zero of making new cells. Sure, if you had this going on your whole life, 30, 40, 50 years of bad function might lead you to some dysfunctional cells. Dysfunctional cells don't work right, and cells that don't work right don't feel right. So in our clinic uh, in Seattle at Anderson Medical Specialty Associates, um, and in some of our other work through university, we started to step back and say, in our large group of patients who have uh, problems with chronic issues, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, what would happen if we took that a group of those people, and we took about 100 people, and we did uh, first a study to see if they had these defects, and then the next part of the study was to see if these people would get any better if we fixed the defect. So the first part is, let's see if there's more of this problem in people who have chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And the next part is, does it make any difference if I treat that problem? So we just want to stop for a moment and say, well, what in the world does it mean to treat that problem? How do you treat a genetic deficiency? Well, there's a couple of very important things here. One of the things that we focus on are modifiable genetic deficits, meaning we can do something with either our lifestyle or our diet or nutritional manipulation that would help those genes work better. And so treatment is not aimed at changing your genes 
it's aimed at filling in the gaps where the genes are not working appropriately. And that's very, very important. So our treatment is really aimed at helping the person to change modifiable things, which might include diet, might include exercise and other lifestyle things, and may include specific nutritional augmentation to minimize the effect of that genetic problem. So when we are looking at that particular group of people where we took uh, close to 100 people, the first part of the study was no one had really looked into the idea of uh, is the group of humans who have chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia more likely to have a uh, deficit in MTHFR genetics. There was one study from uh, quite a while ago when they were first doing testing, and it looked at uh, people uh, specifically with fibromyalgia, and they, uh, they assessed that there was no correlation. So we decided that uh, we didn't think that's what we were seeing, so we took a new batch of people who were already diagnosed with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, and they were uh, already being treated uh, for both of those conditions. And we ran the MTHFR gene pair test on all of them. And what we found was actually surprising in how statistically different this group of people was from normal humans. Now, one thing you should know is different genetic variations change between different um, racial ethnic groups. So one of the important things in comparing is to compare the statistics of the so-called normal population and your population in your study with the same uh, racial ethnic group. Otherwise, you could have uh, a group that had very low incidence and, and compare them against a group with high incidence, and you get the wrong answer. So we matched the uh, normal statistical uh, spread of the different variations of these gene problems in the same racial ethnic group with our study group. So it was apples to apples comparison. What we saw was actually a bit shocking, and that was in the chronic fatigue fibromyalgia group, they had far less by a huge factor of the lower grade defects like single gene problems, etc. And they had far higher by a very large statistically significant number uh, variation in the what we call the worst defects, the ones that are more likely to affect health and uh, healing. And that became very eye-opening because that no one had really looked at that before. Now, does this mean that that's the only problem people have when they have chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia? No, that's, that's not the only problem they have. But if you think about those problems, they're, they're slow of onset. Chronic fatigue and fibro are insidious. They have a lot of dysfunction, a lot of pain, a lot of fatigue, a lot of things that don't heal right, all of these sorts of things. And so, um, when you think about it, if you had a problem in your genes that gave you bad cell repair like an MTHFR defect would, it would be reasonable that if you had stressed your system enough 
and those stressors had outpaced your ability to repair, you would develop one of these seemingly unknown chronic problems that we now call chronic fatigue fibromyalgia. So it's not that it's uh, a given that if you have that problem, it will lead to the other problem, but it really does affect your ability uh, to be able to um, heal, and that affects your ability over the long term to feel well. So that was very important first to find that out. Now, the other thing that you see in these groups of people with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia are a few areas of dysfunction. We see immune dysfunction. We see digestion and absorption dysfunction. We see widespread pain and muscular dysfunction, weakness, pain, uh, neuralgias, etc. And we even see a lot of hormone dysregulation. Well, if you think about it, the areas of immunity start with the bone marrow and the immune cells, and they're dividing rapidly all day long. So if I have a problem in making DNA in new baby cells, I'm going to have a problem in uh, my immune system working. How about the digestive system? Digestive system is making new cells every day, and it turns over on about a 12-week cycle. And that's good because we're eating every day, so we have to keep that system going and up. Well, if I have a problem in DNA production, then I am going to have a big problem in my ability to maintain my digestive system. You can imagine if I've had poor digestive function for 20 years, I'm not absorbing nutrients well, I'm not going to feel well, um, and also I might even eat really good food, but it's not going to break down appropriately and uh it's, it's not going to give me the nutrition that I need. Other things like muscle pain and nerve pain, etc., again, it comes from these cells that get used all the time, especially muscle cells, and they can't repair appropriately, so they're always hurting. So these are not all the only causes for fibro and chronic fatigue, but they're very common, and so it logically makes sense what we found in the research study, and that is, that we have a particular set of defects that inhibit our ability to repair. After our break, we're going to talk about what we can do about some of those things because you don't have to just know it's a bad scene and not do anything. It's more important to know that there are positive things you can do. So we'll go to break now and we'll be right back. Anderson Medical Specialty Associates is the clinic that Dr. Anderson founded to provide high-quality, integrative medical care to those with cancer and chronic illnesses. In over 20 years of work with this patient population and research into the best practices for treatment, this clinic provides the highest level of care. Their focuses include all types of cancer, autoimmune diseases such as multiple sclerosis and lupus, as well as chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and chronic infections such as Lyme and Lyme-like illness. Their only goal is to help each person find the best path to health for their individual needs. Located in Seattle, Washington, visit the clinic website, www.amsa.com. The number one 
com, or call the clinic at 206-629-2186. And we're back with Medicine and Health with Dr. Paul Anderson. I'm Dr. Paul Anderson, and today we're talking about genetics and how they affect medicine and health and uh, how this whole world of genetic testing and interpretation is really changing, especially preventive and, and treatment-oriented health care. So before the break, we were talking about this research study that we did with close to 100 patients with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and the incidence of this MTHFR defect in this people and how it was much higher to have uh, a, the bad kinds of defects in people who were sicker with chronic fatigue and fibro than in the normal population. And what we also said was there's um, a, a logical connection between these chronic illnesses and this defect because the MTHFR defects are uh, going to set you up for poor healing and poor cell repair, et cetera, et cetera. So the next part of our study, though, was not just leaving people with the knowledge they had a genetic defect, uh, but we decided to intervene and see if indeed we did something to fix or help this problem, would it help the patients who had uh, the defects? And before the, the break, what we had talked about largely was um, it's genetic medicine and looking at the genome and the epigenome is, is not about really right now, it's not about changing your genes. What it is about is finding where there are weaknesses and then filling in the missing pieces that the, le that the weakness gives you. So for instance, in the MTHFR defects, a person has a need for more of this active folic acid. And that active folic acid is called 5-methylfolate or 5-MT. So people can take 5-MT and supportive nutrients and sort of fill in what their genes aren't doing. So that was the second part of our study. We took all of these patients and we put them on a, a nutrient protocol that filled in the support nutrients that they needed that were missing because of the genetic problem. And this included active forms of uh, the folic acid family, like the 5-methylfolate, 5-MTHF, uh, active form of vitamin B12, uh, the methyl B12, and in some people also hydroxy or adenosyl B12. And then there's other nutrients that are important too, like B, B6 in its active form and some of the other B vitamins. So we took the whole group of people that was almost 100 and most of them had these high-grade defects. We put them on uh, these nutrients to fill in where their genes were not working as well. And what we saw was also surprising, and that was that once we filled in where their genes were falling down, the majority of people had anywhere from 40 to 70% improvement in their overall symptom scores related to chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. Now, something you should know about the study group, they had already been doing treatments for every other thing, meaning they were doing dietary changes, they were doing other supplementary changes to their nutrients, 
they were uh, getting their sleep problems addressed, their infectious problems addressed. You know, the whole uh, the whole world of the chronic fatigue fibro system was already being addressed. So this was one of the last pieces. Now, what this has led to is now with those patients, we screen these things on the front end because we know it's so much part of the underlying cause that we need to see. So with these patients, how long did it take before they had these positive results? And I think that's a really good thing to know. Um, in younger people, meaning 35 years of age or less, sometimes they would notice effects in three to six months that were fairly profound. In people 35 to 45, maybe six months to a year. And in people over 45, they would notice incremental changes, but it would be every three to six months they'd notice a little bump and a little more bump and a little more bump. And a lot of our patients 50 and over it was really about a year where they started to feel like there was something happening. And then in the second year, uh, they felt like they were really gaining on the problem. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense because you've had your genes that haven't worked right your whole life. They've been stressed because you had these other underlying triggers for your chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And then, um, you know, 50 years later, we're going to try and undo all of that. Well, it takes time to undo 50 uh, years worth of, uh, worth of deficit. So you, one of the things that we're always uh, telling patients is you have to be careful not to expect changes too quickly because you have trillions of cells, and those trillions of cells do take a little bit of time to heal depending on how long you've been sick. So this is a good time to uh, take a look at one of these emails that we got about this particular uh, situation. Um, the, the first one uh, comes from a young woman who is uh, 30 years of age, and she says, uh, Dr. Paul, I, I have an MTHFR mutation, and it was found on a genetic screening. What does that mean, and what should I do about it? Well... That's largely what we've been talking about, which is that is that gene pair, and it's actually not one pair, it's a group of pairs, that uh, code for this enzyme that takes the folic acid you eat and converts it to the active folic acid that can help your DNA do the repair. So the MTHFR uh, defect, the first thing you want to find out is, is it one gene or two? And then... If it's two genes, is it on the same pair or is it on two different gene sides? There's a number of MTHFR types. The two that are usually blamed for most human problems uh, are, are the C and the A series. And the C series is associated with things like uh, inflammation and inappropriate clotting and stuff like that. And the A series is sometimes associated with more uh, uh, neuroinflammatory things and some other problems. So the first thing you want to find out is, uh, you know, which, uh, which side is it on and is it both sides or one. The next thing as far as what do you do about it, um, this kind of goes to what we've learned in the last number of years as we've treated people. And that is, is that there's nothing in uh, your chemistry, like these genes that code for these enzymes, that works alone. 
And so the first thing that's important as we've worked with people is while you might need more of one thing in the beginning, like that 5-methylfolate, the active folic acid or active B12, you may not want to be on real high doses of it for a long, long time. And the reason is, is that once your body gets replete and the uh, good um, function comes back because you've uh, you have supplemented what was missing, it doesn't take as much effort to, uh, to keep it going once you have the right good stuff in there. You know, it's kind of like if you have a garden and um, you go away on vacation and it gets full of weeds because you're not there and you don't have anyone to watch it. When you come back, you're going to have to work awfully hard to get all those weeds out. But then once the weeds are gone, you may only have to go out and take care of the weeds, you know, for a few minutes every evening. And it's much the same with these problems. Uh, in the beginning, when you're trying to put all the good stuff back in, usually you're putting more and more in until you start to get an effect. And then once the garden is clear, and in, the, in this case, once you get enough of the nutrients back in, you can back down on the doses. And that really... Um, is a good segue into this next email that we have. And this is one we hear all the time. Uh, it says, uh, Dear Dr. Paul, my um, doctor diagnosed me with a 2, two gene or a homozygous MTHFR defect at the C677 area. Now, that's the what we consider in Western medicine to be the worst of all of the defects to have two at the C677. So, uh, so that's the dysfunctional part. My doctor then told me uh, that there is a treatment uh, called Deplin, and uh, he gave me this Deplin prescription, which I've been taking, and the Deplin prescription is 15 milligrams. So just so you know, Deplin is a... Uh, is a trade version of 5-methylfolate, the active folate, that is sold through pharmacies. So it's a very powerful uh, methylfolate. The reason it's sold through pharmacies is this is also used in psychiatry because uh, one of the other areas beyond chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia where there's research to show that the replacement of methylfolate is helpful is in psychiatry. And uh, we didn't know it at the time, but the exact same time that we were presenting our findings at a scientific meeting about chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, and the methyl cycle defects, a working group from Harvard University mostly uh, had published a paper in the psychiatry journals, and it said if you have a patient who has treatment-resistant depression, that patient will benefit from methylfolate at very high doses. And so they took people who did not have good success with the antidepressant drugs, and they gave them methylfolate, and their depression was improved. And there's a lot of reasons that we could talk about that are a little bit on the boring and biochemical side as to why that is. But when this came out at the same time we were presenting ours, I contacted the lead author from Harvard, and I sent him our data, and he sent back information that said, yes, that's that's exactly what we see in our chronically ill people as well. So it's not just one place where people are looking into that. So back to our, our person writing in here. So the doctor gave this Deplin at 15 milligrams. It was a very, very high dose. 
uh, of this. The, pay, uh, the person goes on here to say, so I took the Deplin, I'm taking it every day at 15 milligrams, and now I can't sleep very well. What is happening, and is it the Deplin that's causing this? Well, uh, to this person, this is very, very common, and it goes back to my analogy uh, of the uh, of the weeds in the garden. Okay, um, a maintenance dose of methylfolate might be a milligram or less, even with a with a defect on C six seven seven, and you need the other B vitamins as well. Fifteen milligrams in the Deplin form or the other forms is a big, big, big dose. And you need to take it as long as it takes to fill the tank, so to speak, or to get the garden weeded in using our earlier analogy. But once you have enough, you need to back the dose down. And one of the things in the psychiatry community, because their patients they use it on are uh, severely depressed, is we often don't see the need to back off on the dose until maybe years later. But in a person who's not severely depressed, like this person writing in, what happens is the pendulum swings the other way and their energy producing system starts to really kick in and their uh, brain chemistry goes towards being on the, uh, on the more excitable side. And so we hear this, you know, I used to be tired all the time, now I can't sleep at night. Very, very common uh, when you need to back off on the dose of the methylfolate. So again, it's something you want to think about. It's why you want to work with a practitioner uh, who's used to these things because then as, as you start to have these things go on, they can guide you towards the right amount of balance. Now, the other thing that in this uh, person writing in is uh, leaving out, um, which I'll make an assumption here, and this happens a lot, is you see the MTHFR defect on both of the C uh, sides, and, and that's the one we don't want people to have, so we give a big dose of the methylfolate or, or Deplin or something. The problem is that now we're running one part of their chemistry faster because it's got the methylfolate, and it relies on lots of other parts of biochemistry which need other B vitamins and trace minerals and other nutrients. So the other th reason that we see this particular problem in people really winds up being that they're needing a more balanced set of nutrients. So normally when we put somebody on a methylfolate as a replacement, certainly they can need big doses of it, but we will always have them on a good B complex that has the active forms of the other B vitamins so that it's balanced out and also on either a multivitamin or something that has trace minerals in it. And people will often ask, well, can't I just eat you know, more vegetables and get all of those vitamins and nutrients? And the answer is yes, eventually you can, because there's uh, active folates in, in uh, most of the good you know, dark-colored vegetables. There's a lot of trace minerals and all that. But if you think back to our earlier discussion, if you've had these defects... Whether you know it or not, your ability to absorb and digest those nutrients is greatly diminished until you fix the whole system up. So our preference and what we see work in people is to have them do a nice balanced trace mineral, a nice balanced multivitamin with a little extra B-complex, then give them the methylfolate to the dose that they need, and then 
work backwards with them so that um, over time we decrease the supplements that they're taking, make sure they're on a really good, well-rounded diet that has a lot of fresh vegetable matter in it, uh, maybe have them doing some vegetable juicing and that sort of thing, and eventually they can maintain much lower. Now, now that this has become uh, kind of more in the public mind, the other phenomenon we see are people who have chronic problems will bring their children in and they'll have their children tested for these problems. And their whole purpose, which I think is a really good one, is I don't want my child to 20 years from now find out that they you know, didn't have to have uh, whatever it is that I have. So in a preventive mode, it becomes a little easier uh, to deal with. If you consider, think of our worst people we talked about with the chronic fatigue and fibro, you know, that 50 or older, because they've got 50 years of, of working with slow genes. Imagine if you could have taken that person when they were a little child and done very minimal things with them. They may have been replete enough that the genes never would have been as much of a problem. Or if they did get stressed, they would be in a position where the stress would not relate to a big-time disorder or dysfunction. So what we do generally with children, if they're, especially if they're very young, is counsel the parents on uh, the sources in the diet for these trace minerals and active folates and all of that. And those are largely colorful vegetables, uh, a few colorful fr fruits and berries can have these in them, uh, and then good sources of uh, protein and iron and you know all of the other good things that probably your grandmother told you to eat anyway. And the earlier we can have the, the parents feeding these high-density nutrients to the children, the faster and the better that they replete. Because uh, I will guarantee you that a you know, one- or a two-year-old do, even if they have a two-gene defect in the MTHFR, for instance, they don't need nearly as much to go into them to keep the problem from being an issue as a 40- or 50-year-old does. Very different things. So largely, although we might have them take a, you know, a children's nutrient a multivitamin that has active nutrients in it, a child... If they're trained that this is a, this is the way that you need to eat to keep you from getting sick in the future, it truly is preventive medicine at that point. Um, and then as they grow, if they start having any issues, they can always take a little bit extra of the nutrients, but they really don't need nearly as much as us adults do. So that's really, really important to keep in mind that uh, if if you have these problems or you've been tested and you want to, you know, do something preventive for your children or your grandchildren, um, if you can get them to alter their diet and alter their dietary patterns, that can do the work of 90% of the nutrient need in a little child. The older a person gets, the more that they need to supplement. And so um, one, of the, uh, one of the things that um, people will ask about is, well, you know, where can I find out more about all this, et cetera? Um, our clinic is, uh, because we deal with chronic illness and cancer, 
one of our specialties is this area of preventive genomics and uh, you can you can get information and testing through the clinic and our physicians there um, there is uh, also a uh, uh, good um, group uh, there's a lot of groups online and the, the only problem you know of course online you can kind of uh, you can kind of wind up uh, you know hear, hearing whatever you want to hear and getting very very confused uh, about things so uh, you have to be a little bit careful there um, but uh, you can find certain groups online that are you know that are helpful with this um, one uh, area would be uh, a group called the uh, seeking health uh, they they specifically do um, nutrients tailored to this and I, I have no commercial attachment to them I just they're a good a good company um, a uh, doctor uh, who actually was a student of mine a long time ago who has made this his specialty dr. Ben Lynch has a website devoted to this type of medicine and uh, he has a lot of information on there and there's a lot of very good things like uh, videos and webinars etc and then when it comes to treating or troubleshooting uh, that's the kind of thing that our uh, clinic does so uh, if you're in the Seattle area um, you can you know you can access one of our physicians at Anderson Medical Specialty Associates uh, if you're in another area um, you can take a look and the first thing that I would look for would be uh, if you have any licensed naturopathic physicians or naturopathic doctors in your area uh, they're um, getting more and more up to speed on this whole area of genomic and genetic medicine so you can check in with them um, the other group would be uh, physicians who work in the integrative medicine uh, or functional medicine world there's much more exposure amongst that group of uh, physicians as I've said on other programs there's, there's about 17 states and about half the provinces in Canada that have licensed naturopathic doctors and if you're in a state or, or a province where there's not licensed naturopathic doctors you may want to look for an integrative medicine specialist or a functional medicine specialist because they'd be more likely to be trained one of the things that I do in my educational efforts is uh, hold uh, seminars and speak at conferences to try and train doctors to get up to speed on all of this so as we have been uh, talking we've been looking at this uh, kind of you know seemingly brave new world of genetic and genomic medicine the real upshot of genetic and genomic medicine however is that uh, it is something that we've always had we've always had our genes we've always had disorders and dysfunctions that came from the genes we have we've just never been able to get to the bottom of how those two things connected until very recently and what's happened in the last number of years is a burgeoning in the testing and the assessment so now we have lots of information and the problem we have now really is not the information that we have but the assessment of that information and so we used an example today of people in a study that we looked at a large number of people with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and we saw that they had 
a large incidence of one of the many, many genetic problems called MTHFR. And we saw that when we corrected that nutritionally, we had a decrease in the signs and symptoms of their chronic fatigue and their fibromyalgia. And generally what we saw, and we've been watching this group of people over the last three or four years now, is that their improvements are are persistent and they're also somewhat cumulative because as we fix the problems that are accessible, meaning the inflammatory things and putting the nutrients back in and all of that, the body gets into more and more and more of a place where it can heal. And really, once your body is given the fuel to heal, it has the ability to uh, continue to get better and better. And while it's certainly not a quick thing, it's something that needs to happen, and it's, um, it can happen if you just have the right assessment and the appropriate treatment. The other side of the coin that we talked about was prevention, and that is if you know uh, that you've had these problems and you have some genetic testing done, you can also look at your children or maybe even grandchildren and see if they have these problems. And really the conclusion that we came up with there was we are going to have a lot less intervention with a baby or a child that's needed. And most of the interventions needed in little children are going to be the kind of foods that we feed them and the density of nutrients that we put in their diet. And as long as the density of nutrients is high and uh, we have some uh, good uh, broad-based high-nutrient-dense foods going into the baby or the young child, often if they do need some kind of supplementing, it's very, very low level. It is something that's not really uh, of a very high grade that is needed. So just to put this into perspective, we're not talking about the genetic medicine where you see it and it's all scary, like changing your genes. What we're talking about is getting to know your genes and knowing which ones create the potential for which problems. Because remember that the epigenetics, the stresses on your genome, are going to be what is going to push you towards uh, dysfunction. So if you're having signs and symptoms, it's more meaningful to know sooner which genes we need to work on. The other things to, to keep in mind and perspective are everything that we have been talking about. The example of the MTHFR genes pair, that is one of hundreds that can be looked at now medically and help in the, the assessment of what to do about the, the potentials and how to prevent the problems that may come up. And so my, uh, my advice is, if you want to have this checked into, uh, to find first a good uh, clinic and physician group who do this type of medicine. Our, uh, our clinic is specialized in this because of our specialty in chronic disease and cancer, and that's the Anderson Medical Specialty Associates in Seattle. There are also other physicians that we're training all of the time. You can also go if you're far away and you can look on Dr. Ben Lynch's website. Uh, Dr. Ben Lynch, as I said, was a student of mine a long time ago and he's made a great study of this and he's very, very effective and 
you can uh, use that as a resource as well. So, as we come to a close today, our discussion has been a quick overview of genomics and genetic medicine and how it can help you, how it can help in prevention of disease and possibly even treatment of chronic disorders, and how to implement it so that it keeps you healthy for a lot longer period. I'm Dr. Paul Anderson, and this has been Medicine and Health with Dr. Paul Anderson. I'm the Medical Director of Anderson Medical Specialty Associates in Seattle, Washington, and I bid you good day. You've been listening to Medicine and Health with your host, Dr. Paul Anderson. Visit the clinic website at www.amsa1.com or call the clinic at 206-629-2186.